This week's episode is a special on the Sandy Hook conspiracy theory. Um, We'd just like to start by saying that there is some very upsetting content in this week's show um, and if you're troubled by any of it we recommend please talk to somebody um, or just stop listening to the podcast as well. Um, So we've got an interview coming up for you shortly but we just wanted to kind of set the scene and lay the stage with a few foundational facts. So on December 14th, 2012, 20-year-old Adam Lanza shot and killed 26 people and then himself um, at an elementary school in Connecticut. He'd also murdered his own mother in her bed that morning. Of the 26 people that were killed, 20 of them were children um, in, in between the ages of 6 and 7 years old and 6 of them were educators at the school. Lanza had OCD, anxiety, depression and anorexia. Near the end of his life, he communicated with his mother via email, um, despite living in the same house as her, and taped garbage bags all over his windows. He also made a spreadsheet of all the mass shootings in history. That said, a report that was issued in 2014 declared that his mental health problems could not be fully blamed um, for his actions. They say his severe and deteriorating internalised mental health problems, combined with an atypical preoccupation with violence, proved a recipe for mass murder. After murdering his mother, Adam shot through the floor, the ceiling window of the school, walked in and murdered 26 people. So after the event, there was largely an outpouring of sympathy. There were lots of vigils around the country. Um, President Obama visited um, and the town received many gifts um, so that some eventually had to be destroyed because there was just too many for them to cope with. Um, But unfortunately, there was also conspiracy theorists who came after this event who said that um, the people hadn't actually died um, and that it was all just um, a ploy to crack down on gun control laws and that the parents whose children had allegedly died were crisis actors and were faking the deaths of their children. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the families were harassed by people, telling them that they were liars, their children weren't dead and that they needed to repent for their sins. And the largest perpetrator of these lies was Alex Jones, the infamous host of Infowars. We are honoured to have spoken to Elizabeth Williamson, who was a journalist at the New York Times and whose book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and Battle for Truth, was released on March 8, 2022. Here on the podcast, we primarily focus on conspiracies surrounding historical events, conspiracies that may have been deemed quote-unquote harmless. What Williamson exposes in her book and what we spoke to her about is the dangerous and dark side of conspiracy theories and the deep hurt they can cause individuals and communities. We thank her for joining us and for her time, and we hope that you found this interview as informative and insightful as we did. All right, so thank you again so much for joining us. It is really great to get to speak to you today about all the work you've done as well as the book. So uh, thank you again for agreeing to speak to us. Um, I think to begin, we'd love just to be, we're interested in what drew you to the case and how did you initially hear about it? I know you mention it briefly in the book, but we'd love to hear it from you, how you first got interested in in this case. Sure. Um, so when I first heard uh, that the families of two Sandy Hook victims were suing InfoWars conspiracy broadcaster Alex Jones in Texas, um, that was in mid-2018. Um, and I thought that this would be a very interesting test of whether the First Amendment as Jones and other conspiracy theorists repeatedly claim, protects falsehoods spread online by millions of people that result in years of torment of and you know threats against vulnerable people, in this case, the Sandy Hook families. 
Um, but in talking with Lenny Posner, who is the father of Noah, the youngest Sandy Hook victim, I pretty quickly learned that you know, Sandy Hook was a foundational story. It wasn't a one-off. It was, um, it really was this foundational story about how false narratives and misinformation have gained traction in our society. Um, and, you know, from Sandy Hook to Pizzagate to QAnon to Charlottesville to coronavirus to the 2020 election here that mm -hmm. brought violence to the Capitol, um, increasing numbers of individuals, whether it's for reasons of ideology or tribalism or like Alex Jones, um, for profit, were willing to deny accepted truth and establish science. Um, and, you know, my book demonstrates that through these incidents, um, uh, who these people are um, and how they were willing to stoke discord and attack people who insist on facts. And as the Capitol insurrection on January 6, 2021 showed us, um, they are willing to defend these easily disproven lies with violence. Mm. Yeah, this is something we were sort of chatting about before we spoke to you actually about how there is just this increasing sense of um you know mistrust almost in like governments and and what we're told to be true um and yeah and you've brought in an interesting angle there that how people are happy to to try and prove what they believe instead with violence which is a bit of a scary um a scary angle to it i think yeah and um you know i mean obviously uh or maybe not obviously um there are these these individuals who kind of um, consume this material and believe in it, um, they find each other online. And it, you know, what I've really learned in doing the book is that it's less so politics than kind of um, a kind of group identity and uh, a sort of um, social bond that they share um, that keeps them, you know, for years in this case, um, hanging on to something that is, you know, a mountain of evidence shows you isn't true. Um, and they get a lot of psychic income from this. And that's why it's so difficult to, you know, persuade them otherwise. Um, obviously, with, you know, the, the truth has never been more available to us through the internet. But at the same time, people who believe in, um, a, a lie or, you know, in a conspiracy theory um, that's easily disproven, um, they have greater ability than ever before to find each other and to speed these false claims around the world in minutes. Um, mm. And also to find, you know, the people who are sort of the villains or the targets of these false plots. Yeah. I was, um, yeah, really taken reading the book. I went into it definitely with the assumption that it would have been something that that fell along political lines, if I'm being honest, just because of the exposure that I'd had to the to the insurrection and whatnot in January. But yeah, I really I really came away with the sense that it's this almost craving of a sense of community, perhaps that they all seem very very close to each other and not wanting to kind of break rank in that sense. If if that if that's something that you know you you found in the book, it seems that it's almost that they acknowledge that what they've done is so horrendous that if they're wrong, it's it's almost impossible to be wrong at this point because of the lengths they've gone to, which is. Yeah. Yes, that's true. And, you know, it was hard for me to tease out whether there was a sense of him there that if they actually 
you know, felt like they had to kind of come clean and say, well, okay, um, the evidence does show us that this happened, um, or whether it's the the sort of social identity that they have derived from, um, you know, believing in this and from being part of a group that believes in this. And I really do think it's the latter. You know, there are these studies that I talk about in the book um, that talk about how people derive a sense of self-esteem and self-enhancement and identity. So, you know, I talk about a couple of individuals whose personalities and, you know, um, and whose lives I really kind of delve into, like Kelly Watt, who is a, a woman um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who had a cleaning business. And, you know, her daughter told me she had always had a certain sense about her that, you know, she didn't accomplish something more in her life academically. And she was telling me, you know, she had left university and, um, you know, she she had always wanted to be, of all things, a first grade teacher. Um, and, you know, she didn't have that. But through believing in this hoax, um, she, you know, was able to kind of be a researcher and contribute a, tra uh, a chapter to a book um, you know, that was called Nobody Died at Sandy Hook, that was organized by, you know, another conspiracy theorist who actually did have an advanced degree and had been a former professor at the University of Minnesota. Um, but all these people got something out of this, you know, a man with a moving company in Florida, you know, suddenly was a citizen journalist and, you know, an independent media investigator. You know, th this was the kind of thing that, um, these individuals were really willing, uh, unwilling to give up by, you know, being persuaded otherwise. I think at one point when, um, you know, they all formed this group called um, Sandy Hook Hoax on Facebook, and I described them as a ragtag army um, in a inside a Facebook fortress defending <laughs> themselves against intrusions of truth, you know, and that's really what it was. And, you know, they, they sort of have gotten so invested in building this, you know, enormous body of, um, of lies around this particular shooting that it's really hard to, you know, uh, break into that. Um, anybody who, who did, who came to them, like Lenny Posner, who, you know, is, as I, as I mentioned, you know, the father. Yeah, who, who, they um, let, who they let in to the group briefly, did they not? Yes, exactly. So he's the father of Noah Posner, the youngest Sandy Hook victim. And they let him in and, you know, he was seen to them as, you know, like a villain and a threat um, because he was, you know, there with documents proving that his son had lived and died, his school records, his birth certificate, his postmortem exam uh, documents. And, you know, they kicked him out because it meant more to them to believe in the hopes that, you know, they weren't interested in truth. This right. And I think that you brought up something that I think, especially in the position that Claire and I are in, and that you know we're we're student journalists and whatnot, that there is this idea of being a quote unquote citizen journalist, and you know where is the line between encouraging people to you know be curious and ask questions generally, and then preventing people like Alex Jones from spreading these harmful and extremely hurtful and hateful conspiracies, and encouraging people to go down these rabbit holes of falsehoods, essentially, it made me, you know, curious to hear your take on 
on is there a line and, and how do we draw it? Yeah, I mean, I think that was something that um, Lenny struggled with as he tried to get this content taken down. Um, you know, at, they would they were very quick. There was nothing that upset these conspiracy theorists more than having their content removed from the Internet. You know, this was their calling card, kind of their claim to fame um, and the thing they were so invested in. And when he was using things like the copyright laws, um, which, you know, that's one of the tools in his toolkit. One of the earliest things he was able to do um, was to say, you know, use the terms of service from these social media platforms like Facebook and YouTube and say, well, you know, in creating these conspiracy videos and websites and things, these these conspiracy theorists will often go to memorial pages for the Sandy Hook victims and um, you know, their families own Facebook pages, and they would take the photos and use them. Um, but that those photos are home, you know, home videos, home photographs that are the property of the people who took those images. So um, he was able to, you know, that that not only violates the terms of service, it violates the law. So he was able to get those that material taken down because it was using, you know, stolen images. Um, but anyway, um, I'm kind of forgotten what, where we're going with this, but um, that was kind of the first thing that, that he used. Oh, and you were asking me, um, you know, at what point does he cross a line? You know, his, his thing was he would never take down people who were just discussing the crime um, because that's not against the law. And actually that's well within the bounds of free speech. It was just the harmful material that was targeting the victims' families, you know, singling them out, accusing them of being liars or, or profiteers, you know, insinuating that they had staged their loved ones' deaths for money. That was the material that he was going after. And, you know, the First Amendment, um, if I write something like that, particularly if I include the, you know, the addresses and phone numbers of uh, the victims' families, as yeah, the doxing was crazy. Yeah, exactly, and that that really exposed them to you know any number of people who might like to act on the idea that they were frauds. Um, you know, if I did that, as I pointed out to one of them um, in the book, Maria Shang. Um, you know, if I did that, I would be sued, or you know, I would get into legal trouble. But. Um, these individuals, you know, didn't, they often escaped accountability because they operate anonymously and they're operating online. Um, right. And the social media platforms themselves enjoy a legal shield from being sued for, um, you know, being like the, the platform on which this material appears. They can't be sued for that. There's a, um, a clause in the Telecommunications Act called Section 230 that that protects them from um, legal responsibility for this material. Yeah, it was interesting to me in terms of, I was like 16 essentially when all the, the copyright stuff started happening on YouTube. And I only saw it from the perspective of small creators be getting mm -hmm. upset that the big companies were copy striking them and whatnot. So reading it from this perspective, it was like, oh my gosh, this, this is, terribly unregulated. I can't believe it took so long for them to take down this content. And the reason they did was because of the the copy strikes. It was 
yeah, it was shocking to say the least. I'd only ever been exposed to it from this totally, I guess, innocent point of view in terms of being a teenager and wanting to watch makeup reviews, essentially. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. There is a different side to it when people don't use their powers for good. Yeah, exactly. I was, it was something that I never, it was something I never thought about before. So I'm really glad that that became, you know, that it was a useful tool for him, but it was, I can't believe that it took so long to get the content out. That was just so upsetting to, to read and know that they had to, and they still do endure that, but that it took so long to get these media companies to listen to them. Yes. Yeah, no. And, and they still don't. I mean, what, um, you know, what Lenny learned in this, um, in this battle was that one thing that the social media companies do respond to is public shaming. So he would do op-eds or he would give mainstream media interviews about, you know, how they were failing to protect vulnerable people like the victims of mass tragedy. And, um, and, you know, then they would respond because um, there were a lot of people then who would, you know, talk about what was being said and um, and write to them. And, you know, they can't stand that kind of bad press. Um, but that does not a policy make. And, you know, individually shaming them, then, then it becomes whoever has the most clout is the person who can get them to act. And that's just a perversion of the system. So, um, yeah, right now, there are efforts in Congress, I mean, in a rare moment of bipartisan agreement, um, members of Congress seem to think something needs to be done to rein in, you know, the ability of the of this misinformation to spread online um, in a policy way. So we'll see what they come up with. They're, they're nowhere near agreement on what should be done, but there are at least um, measures being discussed to limit the legal immunity of the social media platforms, um, maybe as a tool for, you know, enforcing a higher standard um, over what travels online. Mm, yeah, I think that's something in, important and something that hopefully we'll see. Um, so moving on to your, your book a little bit then, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth, uh, which came out earlier in March. You begin the book um, with a really interesting quote. We kind of wanted to ask why you went for it, what it means to you. Um, I'll just read it out quickly. Um, no culture can rest on a crooked relationship to truth. And that's from Robert Musil, um, The Man Without Qualities. Um, so yeah, wh where did you kind of come across that? What does it mean to you? Um, and ha do you feel that as you've done more research into the story, um, that has kind of evolved, do you think? Absolutely. So that quote was used by a colleague of mine, um, Roger Cohen, uh, in an early column about Donald Trump and, um, and how, you know, he was feeling that, you know, this sort of daily lying by the former president about matters great and small was yeah. starting to erode, you know, our commonly accepted standards over, you know, what is truth and, and what any politician, you know, on the right or left of the political spectrum um, can, can rightfully use to justify their policy positions. You know, um, if you are basing, um, your decision making or, you know, your policies as a public servant on, you know, falsehoods or conspiracy theories, then where do we go? And, you know, I, he wrote that um, and I read it 
long before the January 6th insurrection in 2021. Yeah. But, you know, as I was finishing the book, um, I just remember, you know, taking a break for lunch, turning on CNN, which was kind of my habit, um, and and just seeing people scaling the walls of the Capitol. And, you know, of course, I was writing about, you know, the 2020 um, election lie that, you know, the former president believed that the election was stolen and that was why he he lost. And, you know, he as we're seeing, you know, in this very moment, you know, he got some pretty influential people to, you know, believe in this claim and, you know, a swath of Americans, um, hundreds of whom turned up at the Capitol and were ready to defend this falsehood with violence. So um, watching that, I was thinking, okay, this is no longer uh, eroding individual lives and um, and even groups of people's um, lives and safety. This is actually eroding our democratic ideals that um, if you and you know, this is a model. I mean, Stop the Steal um, is a model that has been adopted by autocrats around the world now. Um, you know, what a terrible legacy for the U.S. to have um, exported that kind of a false ideal um, to, you know, would-be democracies or worse yet, dictatorships um, that just, you know, if you lose an election, you can just say it was stolen. Um, or <laughs> You know, you, where do we go from here? And, you know, you're seeing it in other, you know, you're seeing people gearing up to use it um, in our midterm elections, which are coming up um, later this year. It just, you know, it's um, it's a very disturbing thing. And um, it really shows that, again, Sandy Hook was, you know, uh, the beginning of, you know, what January 6th um, was sort of the logical conclusion of, you know, if you have masses of people in a democracy believing in a falsehood and, and willing to sort of pursue that um, to its um, to its violent end, you know, where do you go as a democracy? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's so easy to feel, quote unquote, safe from these things or whatnot, or that this is never going to, you know, affect us, you know, me being Canadian, I remember when the insurrection happened, it seemed like that was never something that was going to happen. But we just had the freedom rally and people I, you know, follow on Facebook posting stuff that was clearly what we would call fake news. So it was shocking to see that how easily it spreads and that it's not, you know, a phenomenon that's based solely in the U.S. It's something that is worldwide and that that's it's scary for for all of us and something that you know, need we need to collectively do work to talk about how we're going to to overcome this. You know, the threat of the, on the truth, essentially, as as you put it so aptly. Yeah, I mean, after you know, I spent ten years working as a foreign correspondent um, in Eastern Europe, and um, including three years of that was in Vladimir Putin's Saint Petersburg. Oh wow. You know, I can say that where once it took a sophisticated Cold War adversary like Russia to undermine our democracy and disrupt our electoral process, you know, now a swath of the Republican Party has taken on that job. You know, I mean, like I said, Stop the Steal is a misinformation model so effective that it's being adopted by autocrats. And, 
you know, you look at Ukraine, you know, you have Putin cloaking a naked bid for empire in this sort of mind-numbing lie about denazification. And, you know, at least initially, and actually still, people like Tucker Carlson and Alex Jones, um, who my book shows has been a Putin fan from the start, they run with that, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Ukraine's um, association with, um, <laughs> you know, it just, it's, it, 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 it's like, um, they, they have spread, you know, the, this view to millions of Americans that plays directly into the Kremlin's hands. And, you know, like I said, um, it used to take Russia to do, you know, like some, someone with the, the, the disinformation tool that Russia has to spread this kind of discord. But now anyone with a smartphone can do that in minutes. So, it's um it's a very worrying development and um and that's why I say that you know this book is about the aftermath of the Sandy Hook shooting, but it's really about the the disinformation and the way it has spread throughout our society in in the years since. I think that leads quite well into into a question that I would that I wanted to ask you about Alex Jones in particular. Um, mm-hmm. you, you talk a, a lot about him in the book and just, you know, the, the various untruths and lies he's, he's peddled and whatnot, but yeah, I think it's interesting to talk about Alex Jones briefly. You know, I think the media and the world, we definitely condemn him, but there's a, a sort of strange fascination with him. I want to say, especially amongst people, my age, people now in our early twenties, people like to, you know, play his stuff at lunch and whatnot and just kind of make fun of him more or less. But where do you think this fascination comes from? Because at the end of the day, it's it's very hurtful, the stuff he's saying, and it, it's blatantly lies. It's more than hurtful. It's, it's affecting people's lives. But mm-hmm. in meeting him and meeting people who are so taken with him, where do you, do you have any sense of where this strange draw he seems to have on people comes from? Well, you know, if you watch the show, he can be undeniably entertaining. And I think people, um, you know, they sort of latched on to that early on. Um, but the thing is, he appeals to a segment of Americans who are deeply distrustful of the government, um, whether it's, you know, in the case of coronavirus, for example, the CDC and its guidance, um, or whether it is, um, you know, the government writ large, um, they are uh, deeply distrustful of anything the government says or does. Um, They're distrustful of all official narratives, not just, you know, some. And I mean, while it's healthy to question our government, our government does lie. We have historical examples of that. But, um, you know, at the same time, they don't lie every time. And that's what right. these individuals tend to believe. And so, you know, early on, he was much more entertainment um, oriented. I mean, he was always conspiratorially minded and I don't want to minimize, you know, the things he said even early on because he was saying things like the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, um, which was, you know, staged by a white extremist. Um, and a domestic one, uh, a domestic terrorist, 
um, was staged by the government, obviously false. The 9-11 um, attacks were staged by the government, another falsehood. So these were some pretty big falsehoods. But at that time, he did not have the megaphone that he has now. And so I think that can be the, the difficulty in distinguishing, you know, who he is as um, a radio and internet broadcaster versus what his impact on society has been. And that all changed when, um, you know, he gained the ear of uh, a presidential candidate, Donald Trump, um, who then, you know, echoed a lot of his theories around immigrants, in particular around Islam, you know, from the White House. Um, and who, you know, here we had a president who was not only willing to criticize his political opponents, that's normal and that's a, a healthy part of our system um, to have that sort of debate and disagreement, but to characterize them as villains and to um, make them, you know, the villains in imaginary plots. Um, I mean, Donald Trump was someone who entered politics um, by spreading the so-called birther lie that President Obama was not born in the United States. Um, so, you know, this was someone who, Alex Jones had a, a, appealed to millions of Americans that made up a constituency for Donald Trump that had not been tapped by any other candidate. These deeply distrustful, um, suspicious and paranoid um, Americans who really uh, distrusted and disliked government as they had experienced it. They saw in him the anti-government conspiracist candidate, and he really resonated with them. Um, so Alex Jones's audience became you know, the kind of constituency that arguably put Donald Trump, who was running in a very crowded primary field mm -hmm. um, in 2015, when he appeared on Alex Jones's show, um, he put him over the top. I mean, that constituency, um, you know, helped make Donald Trump president. And so once he was president, they had a voice and, you know, we've seen, you know, the kind of ruinous result of, you know, some of, of that constituency, um, what they were willing to believe and, and the actions they were willing to take to defend those false beliefs. I think it's, you know, something that I was, I guess, interested in, in the book in, in terms of Alex Jones is that he, his staffer seemed to indicate that he was he wasn't quite sure how he felt about having Donald Trump actually in office, how that was going to affect his listening numbers, which is just, I think, speaks a lot to who he is and why he does what he does. But that, you know, his his listenership is so anti-government that the idea that he's somehow connected to the president of the United States now he felt might impact his relationship with that group of people who was listening to him. Um, you know, that they're just so distrustful of the government that do they even want someone in office was, you know, interesting to kind of get the, that he, this was something he was very aware of and was, and was thinking about at the time, it seems for sure. Yeah, no, he was, he was, um, he was in a, a very unusual position and, and a powerful one um, in that he had the ear of the, of the president. Um, 
And, you know, I mean, there weren't, of course, not everyone in the White House liked this idea. And, you know, his, his sort of entry to, you know, the president's inter, inner circle um, came through Roger Stone, who was a kind of erstwhile um, Trump advisor who was very much on the fringes of the Republican Party and kind of a, um, a reject of the establishment Republican Party. Um, but, you know, he, he was a longtime friend of Donald Trump's and he was also working for InfoWars. So he was kind of the mm -hmm. conduit um, through which uh, Alex Jones kind of gained, um, you know, invited Donald Trump on his show in December of 2015 and kind of gained um, some form, although it's hard for us to know how much access he had day to day to the president. And this is something that, by the way, the January 6th committee would really like to know, you know, mm -hmm. how much daily communication <laughs> or, or how much communication at all that he had with Donald Trump. Um, but yeah, he, he gained a kind of influence and also um, an enormous uh, audience during the Trump years. So his, after 2013, like between 2013, when he really began circulating Sandy Hook hoax theories to 2016, when Donald Trump came into office, um, Alex Jones's audience doubled to 50 million average monthly users. Wow. Um, so, and in the Trump years, while Trump was president, these court documents that are coming out now in the Sandy Hook family's lawsuits um, against Alex Jones, they suggest that he was making revenues of more than $50 million a year. So he became really um, popular um, and really successful. And with that kind of visibility came more scrutiny. Um, so I think he found himself in a position that he had never imagined himself to be in, and it was hard for him to adjust. All of a sudden, he was being held to account, not only by the Sandy Hook families, but by other individuals whose lives had been uh, directly impacted by the kind of lies he was spreading to so many people. Right. I think, you know, in speaking about these, the, the conspiracy side of it, it, I'm interested to ask you in terms of that you spoke to a lot of the people who were very, very taken with the Sandy Hook didn't happen lie. And there seems to be this common sentiment among them that they have this quote, like quote unquote feeling that something was wrong with Sandy Hook. They've, you know, they have lots of access to the documents showing that it absolutely did happen. And this, in looking at other conspiracies that Claire and I have looked at, this seems to be a commonality across them that it's just people on this going on this, you know, gut feeling or whatnot, and that they don't want to see anything that's going to prove otherwise because they just know deep down or whatnot. And, you know, did you get that sense in speaking to these people that a lot of it was maybe based on this personal feeling they may have rather than, you know, what they act, what they were actually seeing in documents, which I mean, we know are showing that the that Sandy Hook very much did happen. Yeah, I mean, um, what they would do when presented with documents or you know documented facts was to sort of weave them into the theory, you know, to look for um, ambiguities in you know written reports or to look for you know what they would call anomalies in you know whether it was. Um, videotape newscasts um, around the event or um, or official reports. 
um, and they would, you know, pick up on these tiny, you know, errors or um, seeming incongruities, and they would say, oh, this is evidence that, you know, I'm right, that this was a plot. Right. Um, and, you know, it's all about, um, for any conspiracy theorist, it is all about, you know, the feeling they get when they feel themselves to be in possession of superior knowledge. You know, that's where the sort of psychic income comes in. You know, this idea that, you know, um, I know something that no one else knows. There's, when I interviewed them, I kept noticing, you know, as I was doing um, these interviews for the book, that, they, they would, there's a sort of smugness there, you know, that um, it was kind of like, well, you're really missing, uh, you're really missing out here, or, you know, how can you be so foolish? Or if I were you, here's what I would be focusing on. But, you know, it was just this idea that um, everyone else is in the dark, and they alone are the people who are the enlightened ones. Right. And I imagine that feeling is very self-gratifying as well as as you mentioned there are people in some cases who maybe didn't accomplish what they had set out to originally in their lives and suddenly they're in this position where they feel like they have a know something the rest of us don't and they're far more enlightened and get and get to write books and whatnot and 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 things like this yeah Yeah. there's a lot of self-actualization that went on um through that and you know i mentioned earlier kelly watt the um the woman with the cleaning business in Oklahoma, um, you know, she was, when she contributed this chapter to this, you know, book, Nobody Died at Sandy Hook, which had, you know, more than a dozen contributors, um, she was really unhappy when her kids didn't read it, you know, that that she really wanted them to see this and, you know, and to see that, oh, you know, she was excusing herself when her her family sort of gathered in um, Tulsa, where she's from. You know, she she had to. You know, she made a big show of excusing herself, saying, "I I need to go participate in an online conference with my research group, which was just this ragtag, you know, group of conspiracy theorists." Um, but it gave her a different sense of purpose, and you know, and. Um, and there is a, a kind of unnerving smugness about her when you confront her about some of these theories. And, you know, I mean, there was hardly one she missed. You know, it was um, coronavirus and the election and, you know, the trucker revolt. She was um, giving money to that. And um, she's a Holocaust denier. And, you know, there's hardly a you know, a theory around a major event, a false theory around a major event that she doesn't subscribe to. So that speaks less to her politics or to anything that's happening around an individual event than it speaks to her psychology. Right. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that um, they call themselves truthers. Is that right? Like a lot of these theorists. Which, um, which Lenny Posner, you know, the, again, um, the father of Noah, who really made it his life's work to confront these individuals and the social media platforms that they were that were enabling them um he turned that on its head and he likes to call them hoaxers because um you know this idea that they are the sole possessors of the truth and and you know their moniker for themselves truthers was really offensive to him yeah no of course and yeah quite harmful actually i think um so um, a couple of people have, have said that your book is is difficult to read because it does, you know, cover a lot of, um, well, quite upsetting things really. And I think we've sort of spoken about 
um, about those, touched on them briefly. What do you say to those people who are kind of put off um, from reading your book? Do you think it's you know important that they that they read it anyway? And what's your kind of advice to them? So you know, for on the one hand, um, the shooting is you know I I made a very conscious decision to put the the actual events of um, December 14th, 2012, the shooting itself in the prologue so that if someone was really deeply disturbed by reading about this or found themselves, you know, concerned uh, about reading it, they know where it is and it's easily avoided and you can you read the rest of the book. But I thought it was very important to establish the baseline truth of what happened. Um, and, you know, I rooted the account of the shooting in official documents and eyewitness reports so that it further reinforced what happened. Do I expect that anyone who's of a conspiracy mindset um, is going to read that and be convinced? No, of course not. You know, it's taken 10 years. But, but for the broader public, I mean, we all remember where we were when the Sandy Hook shooting occurred, if we're old enough to remember that day. Um, and, you know, it was an extremely traumatic experience, um, certainly for the families and certainly for Newtown, but also for the nation at large. And in fact, there were a number of people who were early on, and, and I, I hasten to add, they were easily convinced of the truth of the event. But initially, a lot of the people who really wanted to believe that this didn't happen were young moms who had children around the same age as those who were killed at Sandy Hook. Um, and so they, they just, they were there for anyone who could convince them that this actually didn't happen and that 21st graders didn't die in this horrifically violent manner. Um, but they quickly became the most committed volunteers in the Honor Network, which is Lenny Posner's organization that he formed, this nonprofit that he created, to um, get this advocate for um, people who are impacted by these false claims um, and for vulnerable people whose lives are, are disrupted by um, conspiracy content and to get that content taken down. But what I would say to, to people who, um, and I, I've had many people tell me this as I speak about the book um, in this country, um, I, I don't, I, it's hard for me to engage with this. I just say, you know, in the words of Robbie Parker, whose daughter Emily Parker died at Sandy Hook and who is um, who is featured in the book, you know, he said, I can tell you that, yes, this is hard material to engage with, but it's not too hard. And, you know, he he was kind of urging people. We did a book event together and he was saying, you know, I really hope people will read this book and that they will um engage with this content, even though it's painful, because, um, you know, we both, we all need to combine and to try and get something done about this phenomenon, which is repeating again and again, as I said, you know, Pizzagate and QAnon and the myths around coronavirus and the myths around the 2020 election and the January 6th insurrection. These families relived the worst chapter of their lives because they believe in the power of our democratic system to get something done about what they see as a societal problem. Um, and, 
if they can do that, I feel like we owe it to them to, to read about what's happened. And they want people to read this book and to get mad enough about what's happened to them and others that I speak about in the book um, to engage and to try and get something done, whether it's by writing to one's member of Congress, whether it's by pushing the social media platforms for greater accountability over the, over the disinformation that travels on social media. Um, they feel like they, they believe in the system. I mean, someone asked me, are you more or less hopeless having written this book? And I just, I, I cannot see hopeless as a baseline. I'm not hopeless at all. How could I be? The families are hopeful. I mean, they remain, despite everything that's happened to them, they remain optimistic and they believe in the system and they believe actually in people who read this book that they will join them um, and help them to, to advocate for some real meaningful change because as we've seen, this is not just happening to them or to victims of mass shootings or of tragedy. This is happening to Americans on their, you know, in their schools and in their communities. Um, it's affecting all of us. And so we all have to kind of, you know, take on the duty of trying to do something about this, this societal problem. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful way to kind of conclude the podcast for today. Um, thank you so much again for being with us and getting up stupidly early due to the time change. Um, so we really, really appreciate that. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm so happy that you're interested and um, and I'm really grateful for um, the, the attention that you want to give to this problem. Yeah, and hopefully our um, listeners will be interested too. Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks You're so much for welcome. joining us. And yeah, we'll make sure that we put all those resources for anyone who is interested, who wants to to get involved and help push for change in this issue. We'll make sure that all those resources are available for you if that is, and we encourage you to get in, to get involved with this. Mm -hmm.